because, you know, people trusted me. Maybe I had Ivy League degrees or whatever it is. They called me about their issues. And back to my earlier point, you heard nothing in my bio about healthcare, social services, government services, but I cared. And so that's the main point. And I tried to help them with all different types of services that were across the sectors of healthcare and government and social services. And I became so frustrated about the fragmentation that existed between these agencies. They all were there. They all wanted to help. They all tried to work together in their communities because they were all serving multiple needs at the same time. It was never just, I need X and I'm good. It was all things happening at the same time and no one was working together. And technology, I, I believed, could be a problem solver for that. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today with Dan Brillman, co-founder and CEO of Unite Us. Dan is an Air Force Reserve pilot. He graduated number one in the U.S. Air Force Flight School. He has his BA from Yale, MBA from Columbia. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You bet. Hey, Dan, as we get started here, we'd love to just hear a bit about your background. Can you can you talk to our community about your journey, the path that you've taken to get to where you are today? Sure. It's definitely a zigzag of a, of a journey and how I've gotten to, to the place we are today. But I'll start from the beginning, which I think is helpful context. Grew up in Philadelphia, went to Yale University, was an athlete there and uh, played lacrosse, went into finance and consulting right after but I always wanted to serve in the military. And in at Yale, I actually started taking flying lessons at the local airport. And my instructor was a uh, reserve colonel in the Marines. And he told me about uh, the reserves and how I could join, how I could fly and still have a civilian career. Do that at the same time. I luckily got into an Air Force Reserve unit in, in the area in the Northeast. And then from there, it was several years of training and pilot training in Mississippi and officer training in Alabama. And then it, from 2008 to 2010 was lots and lots of flying, lots of deployments to the Middle East and came back and went to business school at Columbia. And that was a really good experience for me to get uh, additional skills that I may have missed on. Um, obviously, I picked up a lot of skills in the military, of course, learned how to fly planes and leadership, but also financial skills and, and business acumen. And that's where the problem that I saw started when I was in business school at Columbia. And I'm sure we'll talk through that story as well and how I saw the problem. I ended up writing a paper about it and then worked in venture capital as we're basically incubating this company, Unite Us, back in 2012, 2013. With another stint in the Middle East, I got deployed again. Uh, but nonetheless, that's when we got going in, in 2013. And we've been forging ahead for almost a decade now. Thank you for that background. And I'm just thinking about you with your deployments. You deployed to Iraq, you deployed to Afghanistan. 
And as you know, Breakline works with veterans closely. That's one of the three communities that we serve. And we think all the time about the crucial skills and experiences that our military service members absorb and build and then bring into the workforce. As Before we get started with Unite Us, can you talk a little bit about those strengths that you built as a as an air force officer and as a pilot that you call upon every day you know as you're building this incredible organization and i want to call out that unitas was named one of the top 3 companies in america on forbes's 2021 list of best startup employers y'all are on an absolute tear and i think it's related that you and your co-founder taylor are both either veterans or, or reserve reservists. So can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and how that's helping you build the company? Sure. I, I think of a couple main points that I think are so critical to anyone that, that served in the military. One, you know, the military is, although very structured, there's a lot of variability and there's a lot of what I call thinking on your feet and making decisions and being able to deal with the uncomfortable, the unknowns and be able to make decisions quickly. And lots, I, I think that is the most unbelievable skill that veterans have. It doesn't matter what job you have. There are always things that are unknowns. There are rule books, there are pamphlets, there are you know, technical orders for everything. But when I'm in the plane and I'm flying and there's uh, other people there and there's an emergency, right? We all have to think on our feet. Yes, do we practice and, and things like that? But there are always things that are new that you have to make decisions very quickly. And that... I think are very unique skills in the civilian world that no one else can attain unless you've been in it. And I think that is, it is super important. The other side of the coin is how you work in teams. And I think about our, in the plane I fly uh, for many years, the KC-10, we have, you know, at least four people on the plane. We all have different roles. There's two pilots and everyone has to work together for the mission to get done. And we all may be different ranks. We all have different strengths. We all have different jobs but we all come together to make decisions. And I think the most important point, and especially in, in the Air Force, is you know rank sometimes doesn't matter. It's about who you're listening to, how you can trust each other to ultimately get to the end result, which is getting the job done. And so working through that as a team, I have never felt so much of that except you know in the military, but we've translated that as best we can into a company atmosphere. And those two things that I just mentioned have nothing to do with structure, they have nothing to do with top-down authority or things that maybe in the outside world, thinking about the military is very, very structured, uniform, and to the T. Those two things are could be so further away from that. But those are those are two things that I always point to, thinking on your feet and how you work in a team atmosphere, regardless of your rank, regardless of your role, everyone has a voice, and that's important to get the job done. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're dispelling those myths. I've always thought it was so strange that especially in tech, one of the primary pieces of like one of the primary hypotheses that our partners had before they started hiring veterans was around that rigid or hierarchical thinking. We've never seen that. The veterans that we work with are so creative. They're such outstanding problem solvers, particularly in very dynamic, ambiguous environments. So they're actually perfect for startups and growth companies. The other thing I was wondering if you were going to say, though, Dan, is you said working as a team. The other thing that I've really valued about the veterans on our team at Breakline and also in our community is the pragmatism that comes with having to get something done. And Dan, I'm going to share a little anecdote with you. One of our veterans joined a big, fancy tech company, and he was in the kitchenette. 
and in uh, in his first week and he was watching someone have a conniption because this obscure brand of green tea <laughs> was out of stock and he was like wow this is such a different environment for me in terms of you know what what's actually a problem and so would you comment on just like the culture and the pragmatism and and that whole commitment to getting the job done even when resources are scarce right like that's not an excuse to to achieving the mission yeah. So, I mean, that's a, it's a great anecdote. I don't, I hope I don't see that in, in, inside of Unite Us, but I mean, it starts with, you know, what kind of company do you want to create and the culture you want to create? And that evolves over time, by the way, it is not always mm. a, uh, it's always a point in time. You know, when we were 50 people, we operated differently than when we were 200. We operate very differently now that we're a thousand, but nonetheless, there are some core principles that stay the same. Number one is, you know, our co-founders and our leadership, we're servant leaders. And so, that is just number one. And like, so you think about what gets me excited. Some leaders may say it gets me excited when I give an order and, they, and people get it done and my vision becomes a reality because I told everyone what to do. For me and our team, it's really the opposite. I thrive when people tell me what is right and what to do because they're seeing it, they feel it, and they are committed and they have that passion around what is the right answer. And for me, my job is to take in all that feedback and be able to make informed decisions based on that. And so th- those are very two different kind of leadership styles. I'm not saying the other one doesn't work, by the way. It, it probably does in certain atmospheres. But I trust the team. It gets me most excited when anyone in our company says, hey, I see a problem, which there are problems in every company and things to solve every single day. When they bring that up and they feel the power to bring that up and say, I have a solution to this or let's talk through this. And then I can help actually guide towards that solution. That's what culture needs to look like, I believe, in going forward in, in, in our society, because that's what keeps people jazzed up about the mission and what they're doing and how they feel valuable. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dan, because I think you're also dispelling another myth, which is that military service members rely on hierarchical leadership. I give an order and you carry it out. And what you're saying is it's actually very much about servant leadership and it's a team oriented approach to problem solving. So thank you for talking about that. And I wanted to get back to Unite Us. So here you are, you're you're an MBA student, you're sort of thinking about the next phase in your career. You go on one more deployment and then you start thinking about what's next. And you you have written a paper on, on an issue that has sort of captivated you. And I'd love for you to just talk to us about that early opportunity that you saw, some of the early days at the company, and then how things have unfolded since, since then. Sure. So, and I hope most companies start because people see a problem and they want to solve it. And mine was obviously the unfortunate um, way of how people were uh, veterans and their families were re- receiving or getting services in their in their community across the country, and because you know people trusted me, maybe I had Ivy League degrees or whatever it is, they called me about their issues. And back to my earlier point, you heard nothing in my bio about healthcare, social services, government services, but I cared, and so that's the main point. And I tried to help them with all different types of services that were across the sectors of healthcare and government and social services. And I became so frustrated about the fragmentation that existed between these agencies. They all were there. They all wanted to help. They all tried to work together in their communities because they were all serving multiple needs at the same time. It was never just, I need X and I'm good. 
it was all things happening at the same time and no one was working together. And technology, I, I believed, could be a problem solver for that, of how we tie services together, how we think about just health and our well-being more broadly and not just, hey, I go to this service for this and I'm good to go. It's how do we all take care of each other and how do we all work together as, as service providers to improve someone's health? And so, you know, we didn't get it all right in the early days. You know, you have to go through phases of, what am I trying to solve? Are we actually solving it in the market? Then you get market fit. How do you sell it? Then how do you scale it? And then how do you build on top of it? And that, I just took you through a 10-year journey in 10 seconds, but that's really the precipice for it. And so we made many mistakes in the early days, even before we incorporated and launched. You know, We tried to solve this problem by putting a pretty map on a website of all the services that were in New York City and veterans would come to it and they came. But then they, uh, you know, they don't lie to you. They say, well, you just gave me the same thing just on a on a digital point and I'm still lost, right? And so we flipped that model when we incorporated to build software that connects electronically the service providers to be able to talk to each other, to be able to work together around that veteran and ensure, most importantly, can I prove that client ever got that service when they left my four walls? Something no one could ever answer how fast, what actually happened, because ultimately, veterans were telling their story over and over again every time they walked into a new service provider, even to just maybe get denied. And so we wanted to solve that problem from a, a B2B perspective when we started. And these things were called networks. And so because they didn't exist before, and that's what we call them today now in 44 states. But we had to prove that out over six years and working with great institutions like the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse. That's all the same problem from different angles, from a nonprofit lens, from a research lens, philanthropy lens. And that's how we really proved the model out over about five years. And I think about 15 different cities focused on the military population and it worked. And so, and I can tell you like great stories, kind of like aha moments, like, holy crap, this works. Mm -hmm. And, but then, you know, is it perfect? No, but like, how do we continue obviously to improve upon that and do that really well? So, you know, that's really the the story and, and how we got going. That became the precipice. How do we connect these the unconnected, right? That was the first six years of our business. And then we saw a big opportunity in 2018 where most of these service providers on our on our platform and our software were not just veteran serving. They were housing organizations that had a veteran program or a, a mental health program that was specific to veterans, but they had other ones as well. And everyone's starting to ask, like, why isn't this, you know, why isn't, so, you know, social determinants became a term that I didn't even know. And it was a big popular term in the industry. And it was the same problem. It was, we're fragmented. I show up in the emergency room. I need all these other services. I could have avoided it. How do I connect with the outside world, the community? And so that was our entry point into the large, broader, can we serve all populations and do that at scale across states like North Carolina and Oregon, and then do that at scale across 44 states simultaneously. And it's a, it's a ground game. And we'll talk about the future and where we're going and all the new products we have as well. But same problem, same solution, a little bit different kind of go to market, but nonetheless, same, you know, same problem across the whole country. This is awesome, Dan, and thank you. And before we, we before we come up to present day and talk about the future, I wanted I wanted to just double tap on a couple things that you said. You all started with veterans, and Breakline also started with veterans, and that ended up being a, like a wonderful place for us to begin. Because when you say you you work with veterans, that's like saying you work with America. You know, that's it's right. just such a diverse population of folks. So we were able to build track records with women and build track records with people of color before we actually launched those programs. Can you talk to us about how starting with veterans and military families, starting with that community became an advantage for you all as you built beyond it? Sure. So, you know, 
veterans, as you pointed out, are the, the, the petri dish of American society. It's all backgrounds, races, economic, socioeconomic statuses. It's Medicaid. It's uninsured. It's VA because not everyone goes to the VA, as you know, or is even eligible. And so it's everyone. We think I'm talking more in broad, almost healthcare terms in that sense, but it's, it's everyone. And so part of it, I would say, is like, that's a hard problem to solve early on to pick that population to focus on. Obviously, we're very mission driven and focused on that. But I think it got us our reps and our muscle memory of how to solve these hard problems and, and do that and then be able to expand in, in, into more specified kind of populations as healthcare sees it, maybe like Medicaid or Medicare and, and things like that or specific other populations as well. So I think that was a advantage for us. There's no doubt it's a hard problem to solve early on and then do that. But I think that's looking back, it's that it was the right thing to do. Thank you, Dan. And and just to put a finer point on Unitas and, and how you all think about your business, this is a tech platform reinventing the delivery of health, government, and community services. And one of the factors that you talk about a lot is something called social determinants of health. And, and as we get deeper into this conversation, can you just explain what that concept is? Yeah. So social determinants of health, as I talked about, it was is a term that has been around for a long time. And it's always been, you know, thinking about what are the conditions and the environments where people are born, they live, they learn, they work, and they play and they worship, right, that affect our overall health. If I could distill it down to you, how our health is determined is not our 15 minute doctor's visit. How often do we go to the doctor, right? It's not that often unless there's pervasive problems, but we still probably don't go as well as much as we should. And access to that is tough as well. And so all this stuff is what's happening in my home, what's happening around me, what, what society am I growing up in? What are those factors that are at play that affects my health? So you think about vulnerable population, you think about homeless population, the homeless population, and just take one example of a, of a person that is homeless. The last thing they're going to, they should be thinking about necessarily is their medical care. And that, right, we, I think about how do we have food in our bellies, a roof over our head. These are fundamental basic needs where I can't focus on my medical care or my diabetes or my heart problems if I don't even have basic needs taken care of. And so when we think about those types of things, solving for it, healthcare, right, and governments want to solve for that, but it's very hard to do when you're not taking care of these wraparound services that affect people's health. And so just distilling it back to you, I don't spend time in the doctor's office, I spend time in the community, and that's where services are really focused and how our health is determined, the majority of it. And so that's why we focus on that community and how service providers can, can improve people's health outside the four walls of the medical community. Mm -hmm. When I heard you describe that, because I don't have a healthcare background, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it makes so much sense that 99% of our healthcare is happening outside of the doctor's office. Okay, so I want to bring us back to those early years at Unitas. You have said in the past that the vision and the vision and the mission have remained the same, but lots of other things have have changed and evolved over time. And you talked a little bit about the go-to-market. And you said you had a couple of aha moments that really helped you all crystallize some of the business and, and the path forward. Can you share some of those moments, those, those times when you thought, we're actually on to something? Because in the early years of any startup, there's a lot of failing you know, in order to ultimately succeed. And y'all had to be resilient during those years, you know, where some of the stuff was working and, and maybe some of it wasn't. 
where did you like, when did you think to yourself, we've got something and, and if we just keep pulling this thread, it could actually turn into something really meaningful. Yeah, I, I remember a very distinct moment. Well, there's a couple, there's always good and and bad, but there's a distinct moment. I think it was in 2015. I was in Western Pennsylvania, where we bring together service providers quarterly to talk about basically a progress review. How are we all doing together? Are we improving people's health? The VA was there, again, just focused on veterans at this time, and community partners. And I was just standing in the back as more of a listener. And what it exposed just listening to the service providers is, you know, what this network meant to them, because it didn't exist before. And they were all varying differences in how they can, you know, what they thought success looked like for them. So the VA was talking about length of stay and how we can help people get back into their homes. So they're not spending days in hospital beds, ensuring people end up in the right points where they never knew those answers before. And it took them hours and hours. And a service provider said, like, I only will work in this system and take referrals in the system because it's saving me 85% of my time, which is saving me money. And I can raise more money now. I can talk about my impact in a different way. And I was like, wow, those are like very varying opinions, but all around the same thing. How to, because what that did was that meant I got the supply side. We got the supply side working together right efficiently, which ultimately for that veteran and their family made it easier for them to get the services they needed. Right. If, if the supply side is getting faster, just like our Amazon boxes show up very quickly, that means me as a consumer buying on, on Amazon. That means I'm fulfilled when it gets here in two days. Right. And, and prime. So I think that was the aha moment. I think the challenge became was. How do we double and triple down on the the varying uh, the variability of these service providers? They're very different. They all have different bottom lines. They all have different thinking around what success looks like, but they all want the same thing, which is us, right? Or the, this network and the connections that they've never had before. And so that's like the that was a very good aha moment for us. And and, and then you know, and, and part of that was you know people started talking about, hey, can I add this organization? They serve. You know, they'll, they'll serve everyone, but also veterans. So like, then it started talking about, all right, how do we kind of like expand this more? These problems exist everywhere. So that was, you know, six, seven, seven, almost seven years ago. Um, uh, so it's pretty interesting from that experience. Dan, as you were sharing that, I was thinking some of the organizations that you all are are working with and partnering with and pulling together, I wouldn't think right off the bat that they would be sort of first in line to try something new necessarily. Was there... Anything that you learned around building kind of coalitions, building communities, you know, building partnerships when when maybe people in those organizations could tend to be more risk averse? Yeah, if you think about the world that we're in, we're in the change management game, ultimately. We've been in the same muscle memory for 100 years, providing services and just even think about the medical world. We were on paper 10 years ago. Now we're on medical records, right? So that's only 10 years ago. And so it's not, we don't, it's not a long trajectory. So we are, we're invested in this for generational change, which requires change management. And technology is obviously an enabler in how you do that. And so I was going to actually tell the second, <laughs> second interesting story. So how do you convert people who don't necessarily want to change? And I remember even early on too is when we also do kind of strategy sessions in the early parts of network building to bring everyone together and convince them, right, to work together and use the technology to do that. And I remember there was one lady who stood up and said, I'm not doing this. There's no way I'm not getting on this technology. There's just no chance it's going to happen. I've seen this before and just not going to do it. I'm not going to bring my partners. And for me, I was like, oh, it's game on. And so during that meeting, I had her come up and demo and say, hey, 
send an electronic referral through our system. And do you know anyone in the crowd? She's like, oh, I know like, you know, three or four people pretty informally. I was like, all right, do you send people over there today? Yeah. Oh, all the time. I just, I just tell them to go over there. And I said, do you know what happens? Well, no, I have no idea. And so I said, all right, send it through here. And then I had that uh, person come up and receive it. Uh, and we just like talk through that process. And it's like a few minutes versus she take hours. At the end, she, she stood up and said, I'm like, I, you know, so sorry, I'm in. And I want all my chapters around the country because it was a federated organization joining as well. Here's my card, right? And so we're doing that now in 44 states and hundreds of thousands of service providers. And so that still happens today. There's no, even technology has changed over 10 years and, and people are more accustomed to software. But nonetheless, that's how you make generational change. And that's why we're invested in this for the long term. Mm, I love that story. I remember I actually tried to start Breakline at Stanford. I was an assistant dean at Stanford when I had the idea for Breakline. And and it was the luckiest no I ever got because then I spun out to start the organization. But as I was spinning out, I realized, gosh, if I had tried to actually do this through Stanford or through any university, it would have taken me 100 years just because you're inside of yeah. a slower moving organization. The and I, I sort of, right? yes. Yes, exactly. And I think it's so cool that you all came alongside and were able to really accelerate what could have otherwise taken quite a long time. Can you talk about this question? I don't, so, so Stanford wrote a case on Breakline, and I just went back to teach it. And I was saying to the students, one thing that concerns me about the nature of entrepreneurship at business schools is the tendency to look for like a quick, you know, lightning in the bottle win, you know, you're, you're in it for two years and then you cash out and get acquired by like whatever, some, some huge company. Yeah. And the, the nature of entrepreneurship, especially when you're trying to solve complex problems is actually so much more substantive and so much harder than that. And also really, really rewarding, you know, to be part of a solution for an intractable problem that affects us at a societal level. So thoughts from you on the mentality that you'd like entrepreneurs to have as they think about starting a company. You know, in many ways, starting a company is a privilege, like having that option or, or, or the ability to go after something that, that interests you. It's a big privilege. And so advice or thoughts or inspiration that you'd have for entrepreneurs who are maybe 10 years behind you. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think ultimately, you need to be able to evolve as an entrepreneur over time. I'm in like my sixth iteration of CEO, I say, and I've had to change how I do business, what I think about, what I'm focused on, how I build teams over the last 10 years. And that will never stop, you know, catch me in two years and, and it'll probably be different again. And I think that's all part of growing inside as, a, as an entrepreneur. And I think, you know, I, there is that thematic around, you know, quick wins and, but I've yet to see them, honestly, like scale and make generational change. And I think that's, you need to be, if you really want to build a company that is going to make change and you need to think very, very long term, like I want my children to consume this service, right? I want my grandchildren to consume this service. And so how do we build towards that? Now, I'm not like, that's many years from now, but it has to have iterations and it has to have changes. And there's hard decisions you have to make along the way. People have tried to acquire us every year and that will hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, maybe continue to happen. That's great. That's a good sign. But there are things where it's what is the end point? And it is not the end point of what is the end. It is what is my next step? Like, where am I trying to get to next to make that generational change? And I think people forget about it. It's more as like, 
what what am I done in one year? What am I done in two years? And how do I maybe get acquired by X, Y, or Z? Not so much how do I get the product market fit? How do I then scale? And then I can make decisions at this point. Those decisions might be like, maybe I fit better inside of a larger org. Maybe that is the case. But you can't set out from the beginning that way. It has to be at that point in time and being able to think in those phases. Mm-hmm. So, so Dan, you brought us through the, the first several years of Unite Us. You all had some, some early success, also early challenges, but you evolved and figured out, you had those aha moments, figured out how to, how to ultimately create a go-forward path for the company. More recently, you all have raised a lot of money. The company is worth well over a billion dollars. You know, the small startup has had an extraordinary level of success. And so can you talk to us about the vision that you have in place now, where you all are today and and where you're heading and what really was behind that excitement in in those those rounds of funding and and what was pulling people to the table in terms of the vision that you still have, but also the, the path that you have for executing toward it? Yeah. So we when we expanded in, to serve all populations and, and build this across states, it was obviously very fast and a lot of demand at the same time. But that didn't mean it was everywhere. And so part of that was where we didn't exist in certain states, how do we how do we say build it, they will come almost in, in that sense. And so, you know, we didn't raise much money over six, seven years. It wasn't until we said, what do we need that capital for to accelerate the impact that we want to have on the world? And so that's when we were much more convinced in the sense of now is the time to do that. There are several factors that have to come into play, like the market has to mature. This is a where the you know first kind of entrance into this creating the market in a sense, and so it has to be brought along with you. You have to educate the market for many years before you try to go fast like that. And so that you know our game in 2018 was okay. Can we do this in the larger, broader health world, right? And so do this outside of the necessarily the, the veteran space. So we had to focus, uh, and we we worked in focusing in New York on Medicaid and North Carolina. Said I want this as my infrastructure for the entire state. So then our our our, our mission became: Can we do this across a hundred counties simultaneously with health systems, which have very different workflows, and insurance companies, and three thousand community partners all at the same time, and do it very fast? And then that was also during COVID, uh, as COVID started. So that even jazzed us up more to get it done faster because people really, really needed help even more. And then our trajectory and our mission became, how do we do this across many states simultaneously all at the same time, right? So the operation you know, had to grow and become more consistent across that and do that well. As we developed that in, in these communities and we got to now we're in 44 states, we got, you know, there's so much demand around this network helps people, it is improving health, it is lowering costs. Then it became... Okay, how do I how do I use analytics and insights to understand the impact? How do I better use analytics and insights to predict what I should be doing? How do I get in front of people before it's an emergency versus reactive, meaning the network is there to serve them? And so we've invested in, in as an end-to-end solution so our, our customers, our partners can consume many different products simultaneously from predictive analytics. And I'll talk about payments in a second, which is really long-term and where we're going. That's the systematic change we're making. How do we become an end-to-end solution for our communities, for our customers across these states? And so we've been investing in that over the last several years, some through acquisition and building out teams ourselves in data science and AI and all that stuff. And then the long game for us is 
really changing how we invest in social care. It is underinvested in today. There are not enough resources, although it's trillions of dollars spent in human resources. It's not, it is not efficient. It is not effective. And we need to bring the medical and the human service world together in how it's managed and funded. Ultimately, the goal is how do we better prepare and how do we better reimburse these social services for the service they provide and the impact they provide on health outcomes and because they do ultimately. And so where we've built a payments product that allows these same organizations that are on our network to now get reimbursed in a different way than you know, philanthropic dollars that they have to fight for at the beginning of the year. How do, we, how do they get reimbursed so they can provide more and better services in a community-based setting versus a medical setting? And that's what we're bridging, those economic incentives. And that's the long game for this world. I always like to um, use an anecdote of mental health like 30 years ago. I didn't consume that 30 years ago, but it was a different world. It was not reimbursed. It was not part of a health plan. It was not as we talk about mental health today. And you walked in someone's house, you may have paid them cash or whatever it is. And now the first thing you ask is, is it part of my health plan? You know, is it reimbursed? Do I get, you know, the very, and so that created a different set of service providers and mental health providers. Now, now there's still a lack of them, but nonetheless, it formalized the economic relationship between that service. We're doing the same thing for all these outside community-based services, which is so critical to people's health. Thank you so much, Dan. It's so exciting to, to hear about what you all are up to and where you're you're going. And as you were sharing that, I was thinking about some interviews I did recently, one with Othman Loraki, who's the CEO of Color, and also with Keenan Weirabek, who's the CTO of Zipline. And Othman was a technologist before he started Color. And, and we were talking a lot about the advantage that you can have as an entrepreneur when you're stepping into a new industry, when you're stepping into a new sector, I think we sometimes overestimate how important it is to have a lot of sector depth versus like the general management that's needed to actually try something new and even just coming at a problem with just beginner eyes. Will you talk a little bit about that? Like y'all have built a huge company in a space where you had absolutely no expertise. <laughs> You know, before you started it and and how that how that was an advantage for you because I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome sort of mm -hmm. wound up in I don't know anything about this space like I'm interested in in a possible solution but I, I've never worked in the industry and I think it people hesitate because of that when in fact it could be an enormous advantage over time. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. I I think an outside view in has helped us because we we had to take a position in the industry to say the status quo does not work. And there are many other solutions that have been tried, right? We I told you about one we tried wrong. And there are many companies that just tried that, right? And they sold that for many years and it never doesn't scale. And it's very hard to do that because ultimately people want bottom line changes, right? They want ROI and they want the impact. And so from the outside in, if we push that change, because I think otherwise, you know, the status quo might have stayed the same. And so I think that probably helped us a little bit. Now, you know, we've grown up a lot, obviously, and I'm, I'm dangerous enough in the, in the sector, obviously. But we have a lot of people around us that even know the sector much better than, than me. That wasn't necessarily needed in the beginning. It was more of like, can we disrupt it? And, and, and will people change? And we had to prove that out. Will people change? And we, we know that they will and how technology can help that. And I think just from the outside in, we, we push the industry forward. And I think, I'm not saying right or wrong, if we came from the industry itself, we might have taken a different approach, which may have not had the same amount of impact. 
It's so interesting to hear you say that. And especially when you refer to yourself as dangerous enough. Now, and Othman's perspective, which I thought was also really interesting, he said something like, it takes you three months of intense focus to be at the 90% level of what you need to know in a new industry. Did you have a similar, did you have a similar experience where you were just immersed in it and you felt like pretty quickly you had your grasp of the major issues and and a potential way of solving them? Yeah, I, I think so. For sure, at the 30,000 foot view and across the kind of customer base, and we have a diverse customer base. But as you get into each kind of vertical and you talk about, you know, what you got to remember, like the customers that work in Medicaid think about Medicaid as their business, right? And so then I had to become, you know, that three month process you just talked about in each kind of vertical, right? And making sure we have enough, one, me being smart enough in that, having people around that, that know the world um, a lot better because then it gets a bit nuanced, you know, in, inside of each type of vertical. Because we're tackling a huge TAM, right? It's still undefined almost, right? It is not Uber for cats. And I know how many people can pick up cats in the car and have that throughput. We're, you know, moving an industry. There's 900 directions, by the way, we could go. It's about, and we all have really good ideas. There's a million. The amount is like, what is the right time? What is the right place to be able to, to do those things? And they're all, there's no right or wrong answer, but it is decisions to be made in each type of, as we enter new types of businesses or new types of customer bases. That's really interesting. I just wanted to pause. You said TAM and you meant total addressable market. And so the other thing I wanted to, to talk about though, is you were talking about like having all these different opportunities and possibilities for growth and momentum. And I think one of the hardest things to do in startups and in growth companies is to focus and to drive the outcome before you continue building out. Can you talk to us about that? Like how you all balance focus versus R&D and investment and, and you know how you choose where to place your bets? Because as you said, you can't do everything all at once. Yeah. So... I can point to every product we have now and our aspiration to do them years before they happened, for sure. So payments, we've been talking about since 2017. And so, and now it is, you know, in the last year live, right? So, but it was not, if we launched that in 2017, it would have fell on its face. The market wasn't ready for it. There's no chance. Would it be one, super innovative? Two, like, does it make market sense? All of those factors around like a business plan would have worked but the market was not ready for it, right? Regulatory change had to happen. People had to know what a network was first to be able to know that their patients were getting care and you know costs were being reduced and it worked for them to say, I want to pay for this stuff. And so I can point to almost every product we invested in that we have invested in that we did not decide to do. One, maybe we didn't have the bandwidth, like maybe I could have pushed us there, but it was not the right time. I'll talk about you know data and analytics as an example. We, in early 2021, was when we actually had the start of like a whole data infrastructure team. We had always had data. We always had insights and we provide it to our customers as part of the business, but it, it wasn't a business line. It wasn't a product itself, right? And so I don't have regrets about any of that. Maybe it was like a little bit earlier, but nonetheless, it was the right place at the right time to say, this needs to become its sole product with its own product managers and its own vision around how we use information to educate and, and show impact. And so every product I can think of, honestly, that, that we've launched, we could have done it earlier. It was just not the right time. Dan, thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit and just talk about the, the relationship that you have with your co-founder, 
tailored justice. And Mark Andreessen is famous for saying something like 90% of startups fail and 90% of the failures are due to co-founder dynamics, like dysfunctional co-founder dynamics. And and you and Taylor have, have obviously figured something out. You all have been in this together for many years now. What why has that relationship worked so well for the two of you? And and what recommendations do you have for other co-founders who are thinking about going into business together? Yeah, I think ultimately why Taylor and I work so well together is because we really understood each other's skill sets and what we like to do, and most importantly, like what we don't like to do. And so there is a very big difference between what Taylor likes to do and what I like to do, and that's why it works ultimately. And you got to figure that out pretty early. And so you can draw lines. Now, it took us several years to do that because we were all trying to do a million things at once. And we were all trying to, when you're 10 people, you you have to do everything yet. You have to do sales. You have to do marketing. You have to do implementation. You have to do tech. You have to do product. But as you kind of grow up, then you start saying like, I need to start orienting over here. And you start orienting over here and you start naturally orienting to what you're good at. And that's what we've done really well together where I, you know, I love products, I love technology, I love building, I like working with customers, I love seeing the problems and then solving them. And that's just like the way my brain works. I like solving team problems, I like solving product problems, I, I love the market. And Taylor, when he wakes up every morning, he says, how can I convince XYZ that this is the right solution, right? And how can I sell that? So I maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, he'll probably kill me. But you know, if it was up to me, I would have given away everything for free and said, please just use this. And he will say, why would you do that? We could sell it. And so that's like really good tension because it is it is good because I want it, I want it so bad to get out in the market and break things and improve them. And he's like, dude, the market wants to buy this. And so this is how you sell it. And so that's what I would you know offer to, to you know, founders of companies is try to figure that out and be honest with yourself, right? Like I, I have to do, I'm, I'm the CEO, I have to do sales. There's no question about it. But do I wake up every morning? I rely on Taylor. Like I, you know, and that's just how he works. And he relies on me to get things done you know, inside the business. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I love that, Dan. Sometimes when we think about a company and the impact that it's having, one of the most powerful ways to to really understand is to bring it down to one person or one family, one example. As you think about Unite Us, is there a story that that you reflect on, you know, someone who whose life was really improved as a result of the work that you all are doing or a family? Is there an example that you could share with our listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, gosh, there's a, there's a lot. And we have in, in our channels, the feedback channel to for storytelling. And we get a lot of stories and a lot of them are like, you know, feel like amazing, feel good and how, how you change lives. Prior to COVID, when we did a lot of the in-person kind of sessions, we would bring clients who have been served by the network and by many service providers because this existed. And I, I will never you know forget the person just telling us, like what would have happened when if this didn't exist? And that just like drove me even more. It's not so much how great the technology was because they didn't use the technology. It was the service providers who did it for them and how they all connected with each other. So it wasn't why Unitas was bad. Had, didn't really know Unitas. That wasn't part of the story. The story was why we changed their lives, how we changed their family from food to housing to mental health to suicide prevention, right, to healthcare. All of these things getting solved by a new team. And how they felt about that, 
And so those are the things that just, I, when I wake up, it obviously gives me chills all the time. And that's, that's what keeps you going. I love more of those. And I sit in that Slack channel all the time because I love seeing that both from the service provider view, because they get to feel it too. They got to feel the same thing I did, except I'm the technologist or I'm the CEO of the technology company. So, so hopefully that's helpful for the listeners. That's so awesome. And Dan, can you talk to us about also the advantage of building a mission-driven company? It's such an incredible advantage from from your own personal source of inspiration and motivation to being able to attract teammates to to join the mission in, in a whole bunch of different ways. You talk to us why having a mission like this is so crucial as you build the company. It's a great question. One, it's easy to work here around the mission because it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, you're a community engagement manager getting people on our technology, you're a data scientist trying to drive better impact around data. It doesn't matter where you work in this company. It's very easy to understand why you're making a difference and this company is making a difference. And that's hard for a lot of companies. And like, it's been totally understandable, but the way we start every all hands and or town hall is with an impact story, which is really important. So it all kind of orients us around like, why the hell are we here every morning? Why do we wake up? Why do we do this? Even myself and all of us, we have to remind because we're always in the grind and that work. And that's, and so ultimately I think in 2022, people want to feel like they're doing something good for the world. And I think that's just changed in the dynamics of generations and what they want to work for. And so obviously that makes it a little bit easier, obviously to recruit as well. And obviously we have a very diverse workforce as well. And they reflect the communities we serve or people hire on the ground from those communities, which is critical for relationship building, trust, and also ideating, right? Like the ideas come from every person at this company so that we can proactively continue to innovate, provide equitable opportunities for people inside the company, for the communities we serve with our technology as well. So for some companies, maybe you're asking me for advice is like, Try to find that point. Ours is easy. I totally understand that. Not every company may be, but try try to convert whatever you do into how how it's helping. And I've seen really good examples, by the way. And like, I forget what it is. It's like Opportunity for All. I can't remember. It was a tax company <laughs> and they were trying to, or maybe it was, you know, more money in your pocket, whatever it is. Try to worry around how that helps, even if it's like a transactional system. Thank you, Dan. And I know we're coming up on time. So Last question, and I'm not going to ask you when you'll know that you're done, because I, I would imagine you know that there'll only be the next horizon, no matter where you all are. But is there a milestone that you're really looking forward to that, that's already within sight in some respect that you're building toward that's part of your day-to-day motivation? Yeah, I mean, so you know, there's blocking and tackling that's in front of us now. And have, having our social care infrastructure across 100% of communities is is very clear in sight. And we know we will get there. What we talk about, the, the dynamic change and the generational change we're making, there's billions of dollars to move. When we get to a billion dollars of economic reimbursement for these social care providers, I'll feel like it's going to get to 100 billion and that train will just continue to move. We already have hundreds of millions and we'll get to close to a billion in the next year or two. And so that we continue to support community-based organizations and how they're, how they provide services. That's when I'll, that's when I'll know. That's fantastic. Dan Brillman, co-founder and CEO of Unitas. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. 
And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.